You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 22nd of February 2023 on Monocle 24. US President Joe Biden meets the leaders of NATO's eastern flank with one notable exception. An aspiring First Minister of Scotland trips over the barrier between religion and politics and the trains in Spain will stay mainly on the plane as they won't fit into the tunnels. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Barbara Serra and Lou Lukens will discuss all the day's big stories and the latest episode of this week's series on Ukraine, One Year On, looks at the role of culture in a country's war effort. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I'm joined today by Lou Lukens, senior partner with Signum Global Advisors and former US diplomat and by the international journalist and broadcaster Barbara Serra. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. Um, In this light introductory banter segment of the programme, we do often discuss recent travels of our guests and helpfully you both have been doing that if for wildly divergent reasons and to wildly divergent destinations there is no seamless link between the two of them. Uh, But Lou, you have been visiting your nation's capital. I did. I flew to Boston to visit my son and then down to Washington to visit with my mom and my sister came down from New York. So it was a nice couple of days in the nation's capital, and which I always enjoy visiting. It's, it's a non-objectionable time of year to visit Washington around now, isn't it? Uh, Mid-February can be pretty harsh, but actually we got lucky with the weather. It was perfectly pleasant. It's still not going to be as bad as Washington in the middle of summer. No. But no, but no cherry blossoms yet either. So I, I will never understand why you people built your capital on a swamp. You had you had so so many other options, um, Barbara. Actually, maybe there is a bit of a seamless link. You have been somewhere where there was sort of snow. Sort of snow. Actually, it was great weather. Probably too great. So I went skiing. I'm from Italy, so I went to a place called Champoluc near the border with France. You know, lovely. The food is great. The skiing is great. Even with my little six year old uh, skiing around. But there is not as much snow as there was last year, and not as much snow as the year before. We all know it, but it is shocking when you go there and you see it. The pistes are okay, but I've never seen the the peaks of the mountains. You know, the Alps are quite Mm. high as well. Um, So yeah, so that's me. Uh, Genuinely though, how far are they from being actually quite existentially concerned about whether skiing is going to be possible? You know, it's not so much the skiing on the slopes. It's all the off-piste skiing and a lot of the alpineering and a lot of, uh, oh, I forget what it's called, you know, the skiing, uh, cross-country skiing and and all of that. So, because you're not really going to spend the money, are you, to to make sure that those pistes are covered with snow. So I think we still have a couple of decades when it comes to traditional skiing, but even my brother-in-law just couldn't do the alpineering, the, the mountain that he usually does because it's also a risk uh, right now because there isn't enough snow. Well, we will start properly in Warsaw where US President Joe Biden has been meeting most of the Bucharest Nine. That is the leaders of nine Eastern European NATO members closest to Russia. One of the lessons of the last 12 months has been that these countries have, for obvious enough reasons, a less naive view of Russia than that possessed by many of their neighbours further west. Cries of, we told you so, have been a recurrent 
motif from Tallinn to Sofia, with the exception of Budapest, which still seems to be having trouble picking a side. Hungary's Prime Minister, Viktor Orban, sat this conclave out. President Biden spoke at a roundtable with the leaders of the Bucharest Nine, or perhaps as we should think of them, the Bucharest Eight, where he stressed the importance of unity in the alliance. Over the past year, with your countries, which countries around this table, providing collective leadership, we've also strengthened NATO, a commitment of the United States to NATO. I've said it to you many times, I'll say it again, is absolutely clear. Article 5 is a sacred commitment the United States has made. We will defend literally every inch of NATO, every inch of NATO. And uh, it's this an important moment. I look forward to the discussion and the next steps we can take together and to keep our alliance strong and to further deter aggression. Because what literally is at stake is not just Ukraine, it's freedom. President Joe Biden speaking in Warsaw earlier. Um, Lou, that phrase we told you so or variations on it regular listeners to our programs will have heard it uttered quite a lot this last 12 months by current and former politicians from the baltic states uh, in particular would things be different now if we had listened to them a bit more over the last decade might we have a world in which there is no nord stream 2 uh, in which we had disconnected from russian gas earlier and in which perhaps russia's invasion even of georgia in 2008 might have occasioned something of the response that we have seen to their invasion of ukraine in 2022 I don't know. I, I sort of doubt it, Andrew. I, I think, <laughs> I, I think um, I'm not sure with hindsight what the United States might have done differently. I, I think it's all, it's important to point out that Joe Biden's speech is also against the backdrop, not just of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but of four years of a Trump presidency where he was very skeptical about the utility of NATO and pretty much did all in his power to to you know destroy NATO. So I think if if this invasion of Ukraine had happened during the Trump presidency, we'd be looking at a very different world right now. But I think part of Biden's mission on this trip and part of his reason for going to Ukraine and then going on to Poland was to really continue to reassure our NATO allies that we are seriously in this and we're in it for the long haul. Uh, Barbara, what have you made of Biden's tour, especially the the optics of it as well as they relate to that that point that Lou was making that this is a an unmistakable or is intended to be an unmistakable gesture by the president? Yeah, if I can also just pick up on what you were saying, you know, if we had done things differently in two thousand and eight, mm. I did sixteen years at Al Jazeera English from two thousand and six onwards, and so I think we often forget in this discussion that actually the West was involved in the so called war on terror and everything that was unfolding there, and so opening a second front. I mean, obviously, there were tensions over Syria, for example, with Russia. There's still uh, it's there's still an involvement there. But I think that was the different, um, you know, we had a different focus. And I just always find it surprising how it's hardly ever mentioned now when mm. we talk about uh, the conflict uh, with Russia. So look, what is Biden doing? He's going around trying to reassure everyone. I think, you know, a year ago, many of us have thought we'd be here. I think now it's clear that we may well be here a year from now and that this is going to be 
uh, ongoing. And I think there is no clear victory over Russia. And I think now speaking of the Bucharest 8 or 9, but also about Ukraine specifically, it, it really, to me, the focus will be about giving Ukraine some kind of security when there is some kind of peace. I don't know if there's any trust left towards Vladimir Putin uh, from the West. And so it would be about trying to secure uh, Ukraine uh, going forward, you know, the shape that that would take, NATO membership, EU membership. We don't know that yet, but I think that's the focus. Uh, Lou, on that uh, difference there between the Bucharest 9 or Bucharest 8, how much do you imagine the rest of NATO really cares what Hungary thinks about anything? Well, on the one hand, you know, I think people have come to expect this kind of behavior from Viktor Orban. On the other hand, part of the the, re, the sort of the, the the crux of NATO is that it is a unified coalition of countries, and when countries start to split off, and I'll throw Turkey in that pot too, um, when when countries start to split off from sort of the core agreement or purpose, uh, agreement of purpose of NATO, it, it does create strains in the relationship. So I think on the one hand, no one's surprised that 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 Orban, you know, sat out the meeting today. On the other hand, it I think they were certainly disappointed and it's something that I think is is alarming um, as we look to the future of NATO. Um, Barbara, what's your read on where Orban thinks the mileage is in this? He can't still possibly <laughs> imagine that, that Russia is the winning horse here, can he? Uh, no, but interestingly, didn't he say that only Donald Trump can can save it or can make it better or can end the war uh, in Ukraine? Something he's, he's along a weird guy, Orban. Well, I think we also have to take, you know, we're talking about NATO and the EU like they're two in the same thing and, and sure. they're not. And it was very interesting when I was reading about Moldova, I think, getting either status about, you know, there's talks about Moldova uh, and uh, entering uh, the EU. You know, there's tensions within the EU. There's a lot of people within the EU that don't think that enlargement is necessarily what the EU should be doing now. And so, you know, NATO and the EU are not interchangeable. And we all know that Orban is having huge issues within the EU, uh, where I think it was the European Parliament said that Hungary was no longer really a true democracy. So very strong uh, words there. So, you know, I think he is not going to do anything unless he gets something in return would be my assessment. Just finally on this one, Lou, uh, and going back to what we were saying at the top about the the Baltic states in particular saying we told you so, there is an opportunity later this year for NATO to make a pretty significant gesture when it names a secretary to Jens Stoltenberg uh, as secretary general. Has the time come, do you think, uh, for a secretary General from NATO's eastern flank, and I, I w- listeners to the Foreign Desk will discover over the next couple of weeks that I did put this scenario directly to a couple of the Baltic politicians who are being touted uh, for this li- for this for this role. But w- what do you think? Would that what sort of statement would that make? I think that would make a very important statement, and I think, um, I mean, pure conjecture on my part, but I think the United States would support that. I mean, obviously, the United States' voice in the selection process is important, and I think. S- picking a a Baltic leader to be the Secretary General of NATO, I think would send a very important message to Russia. Well, let's move along and look at Scotland, where the race to succeed Nicola Sturgeon as leader of the Scottish National Party and therefore First Minister has seen one bolter from the gate come down at the first fence. Kate Forbes, Cabinet Secretary for Finance and the Economy, has acknowledged that she is not terrifically keen on gay marriage or the having of children outside marriage and justified her stances with reference to her membership of the Free Church of Scotland, a smallish evangelical sect. She was questioned on her views in an interview with Channel 4 News. Marriage being between a man and a woman, that is what I practice. But I will not roll back on any rights that already 
exist in Scotland. If you were about at the time where you were able to legislate on this, that's been and gone now, but you would have voted against that then because of your beliefs? I would have. And I think the example that's worth talking about here is Angela Merkel. Under Angela Merkel's leadership, she held a vote on same-sex marriage. She implemented the results of that vote to introduce the legal right to equal marriage. But she voted in line with her conscience. Uh, Barbara, Kate Forbes says there that despite her personal belief, she would not make uh, any attempt to row back on existing legislation. And she does raise an interesting point there, which is what actually matters in political leadership? Is it what they believe or what they actually do? Yeah, so I think this story is fascinating, you know, and I'd love to know how how it would play in other countries as well. So I think the question is, can you be religious and a political leader in a country that is increasingly secular? And I know that a lot of people are saying, well, the SNP is a particularly progressive party. That's the Scottish National Party. I mean, yeah, up to a point, but ultimately, even the Conservatives, who are not a particularly progressive liberal party, you know, are for gay marriage, are for divorce or for abortion. So I'm not sure that the argument links that it's still that it's just to do with the SNP. Um, I think, you know, I think religion matters. I think in certain parts of Northern Europe, we've convinced ourselves that religion is just passe. I think, you know, around the world, there's nothing to suggest that religion is on the down. I think it would be interesting to see what reaction there would be if she was Muslim or Orthodox Jewish, because, you know, those views are pretty much the same. The sanctity of of marriage, you know, that, that people may choose to go for or not, but you could still have that as your aim. And so I don't see a problem with what she's saying because she is not saying that it will affect her politics. She is saying that her own vote by conscience would go along with whatever she chooses to believe. But presumably she would never have something like a three line whip where she would impose the vote on her party. So frankly, I personally don't see an issue. I also don't understand why this is a surprise and it's happening now because her party put it forward. I saw her in some Scottish um, uh, debates over the issue of the transgender law, you know, that kind of caused Mm. all of this. It was obvious that she had you know, what we could call traditional religious beliefs. So I'm just amazed that the party seems to have... Like, why is this all exploded now? Didn't didn't they know before putting her forward? Uh, Lou, how do you see this? Because the American situation is quite peculiar in that in the United Kingdom, for example, you you have an established church, a monarch appointed by God uh, and so forth. And yet it is, as Barbara points out, an extremely secular country. Uh, To the extent that now it has a Hindu prime minister, the capital has a Muslim mayor, Scotland, in fact, could end up with a a Muslim first minister. And those don't actually seem to be terrifically controversial facts, whatever else people may think of the individuals involved. And yet, in the United States, um, it's very difficult to imagine uh, anybody being elected to extremely high office who didn't do all the stuff about God. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, this is the situation in the United States now is that we, we do have this, theoretically, a separation of church and state. But the, certainly the Republican Party is increasingly embracing religion. And by religion, I mean sort of evangelical Christianity um, as part of its platform and its policy platform. I mean, I completely agree. Kate Forbes' personal views, you know, that's fine. She's allowed to her personal views and she's allowed to be the leader and people can vote for her based on her views. Um, if she's not going to sort of force her views on the party um, or on the people. In the United States now, you have a situation where a lot of Republican representatives and senators um, and candidates are increasingly 
talking publicly about forcing evangelical Christianity on the nation, saying this is what our nation was founded on, which is not true. Um, but is that movement is picking up a lot of steam in America. Uh, Barbara, is there also an aspect of Kate Forbes's views jarring just because they are clearly very sincere and clearly very plainly spoken, and she is hunting for a bit of credit for actually giving a straight answer, whereas most politicians, even if they are people of faith when they're asked about it, especially in Europe, tend to be willfully vague, wishy-washy, and clearly don't really want to talk about it. Um, well, I mean, in Europe, certainly not all the far-right parties, because they make a bit like it, we were hearing in the US, they make a, a big deal out of that. Um, I mean, like you mentioned, you know, this is a country with a Hindu prime minister and Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London, is Muslim. And I just wonder, were they asked those questions? And if they had answered, would there have been this outcry? And would they have answered? I don't know. I mean, look, you know, I, I don't live in Scotland, so it doesn't sort of bother me <laughs> whether she gets in or not. Um, but but I do think there is an honesty. And unfortunately, I think what might happen is that it is a form of intolerance now aimed towards her. At least I see it that way. And I think it can backfire because then that gets used as fodder by the far right. I see that dynamic in Italy a lot, where, of course, we have the Giorgio Maloney party, Brothers of Italy. You know, they are sort of using one of the old, fasc- they predates fascism, but was used in, mas- in fascism times. It's God, family and homeland, you know, so that was one of their mottos. So there is a danger that if we are too intolerant with the views of people like Kate Forbes, who are saying she's not going to impose it on anyone. But, you know, people believe what they believe and they can live their life according to it. I think there is a danger that then it backfires, you know, and then it feeds, you know, what we were hearing before, scenarios like the United States. Countervailingly, Lou, is is there not an argument that we are... And by we, I mean, I guess, especially the media actually a little bit squeamish about interrogating politicians directly about their religious beliefs. That interview by Channel 4 News, an obviously honourable exception. And this occurred to me, and I don't don't mean any particular slight against uh, Mitt Romney, nor the faith to which he belongs. But it did strike me as curious that when he ran for president and was in line to be the United States first Mormon president, I did not see him asked a single question uh, about his faith and whether he literally believed as Mormons profess to do some of the, well, more eccentric views of history uh, adumbrated by their texts. You're right. I think there is a squeamishness about sort of diving into that area of someone's personal life, even if they are a very public figure. Um, I think there are many candidates, um, especially sort of the evangelical Christians, who are very happy to volunteer that information in interviews and in the press. (laughs) But I think the press, the reporters themselves, I think are a little bit wary about going down that road. Why do you think that is, though? Do, do, do the reporters worry that they could end up on the receiving end of the, the pitchfork-toting mob if they're seen to... Yeah, I mean, maybe. I mean, I think part of it is this, this notion that, that many Americans strongly believe in, that there is a separation of church and state. And if you're a reporter and you're, and, and you're interviewing a candidate for public political office, that person's religion shouldn't really matter in our system. Uh, you know, I, was, I think it's different in the United States because religion is more of an issue here. I mean, here you'll remember that famous question when Tony Blair was asked if he prayed <laughs> with God, with George Bush about Iraq, and Alistair Campbell said, "We don't do God." You know, that was however however long ago. I and, think, and of course, Blair waited until he'd left office to convert to, to Catholicism. Convert to Catholicism, but he obviously always, you know, I mean, again, people have are allowed to have their faith. I think in a country like the UK and generally Northern Europe, and if I'm honest, even parts of Southern Europe, we are so secular. I mean, 
I, I can't think. I think in my whole life I've been invited to maybe two baptisms, max three. <laughs> no, but honestly, increasingly weddings aren't in church. And I think that increasingly people who not only aren't religious, fine, but aren't used to dealing in religion and talking about it are are. are not scared. I just think they see it all as a kind of voodoo. And so it's hard to do an honest interview, maybe, or an interview where you have an understanding of what being religious is like. Uh, so I think that plays into it. Because again, in any newsroom, I can count the ones that I've worked with. I mean, the people that even went to church, say, once a month or once every six months, count them on one hand. Just finally on this, Lou, and going back to the United States, is it remotely imaginable that somebody who was an out-and-proud infidel could get within a mile of the White House or a major party's nomination if they just said, uh, I don't believe it, I never have, and should I win this thing, I would rather be sworn in on a copy of the Constitution because upholding that is actually my job? We have people like that in in the House of Representatives um, and I think in the Senate, but I think it's it's very hard for me to imagine someone like that rising to the highest off, to the presidency. Well, let's now look at Spain on that disheartening note for unbelieving Americans. As Spain is down a Secretary of State for Transport and a CEO of its state rail company following a scandal about the relative size of some expensive new trains and the tunnels into which they were supposed to fit. 258 million euros were spent on new rolling stock for the mountainous northern regions of Asturias and Cantabria, but everybody seems to have assumed that someone else had taken a tape measure to the front of the trains thence to the entrances of the tunnels through which they would have to pass. The long and short of it, or perhaps the wide and thin, is that they don't fit. Um, Lou, with with your your wide experience of of government and bureaucracy and so forth, is it actually surprising that this kind of thing doesn't happen more often? It is is surprising it doesn't happen more often. (laughs) I mean, I can absolutely see how something like this would happen. Um, I tried to find examples in the United States, and I think Barbara has found some. Um, But, you know, what I kept coming back to is the the U.S. military procurement system and the sort of incredibly expensive mistakes that they make Mm. um, at the Pentagon. Um, but you could absolutely see something like this happening. I, I, I did look up some examples of my own and rather disappointingly found two, two absolute belters from my own home state of oh, New God. South Wales. Uh, the first <laughs> of which is train related and in fact almost exactly the same thing. They bought 55 new trains uh, which did not fit through tunnels in the Blue Mountains uh, so they merely widened the tunnels. <laughs> that, 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 that option's right there for, for Spain should Spain be listening. Um, Barbara, does... What examples of this have you discovered? So I found a bridge called the Can Opener in Durham in North Carolina. (laughs) I think the title kind of explains itself. Then apparently there's a viaduct in São Sebastião, Brazil, that sort of leads nowhere. And again, someone built a bridge in Mount Baldy, California, that I don't think is attached to a road. Disappointingly, I didn't find anything from Italy, which just can't be right. It just can't be right. It's my investigative skills that aren't good enough. With no disrespect to your (laughs) nation and people, that absolutely... <laughs> can't be right. I know. Um, but on the subject of a bridge called the Canop, there is another Australian example, this one from Melbourne, the Montague Street Bridge in Melbourne. And I do recommend uh, people looking up the website which keeps track uh, of, of its victims. It, I, I'm looking at it now. It's been, it's 93 days since the Montague Street Bridge last cleaned up somebody, and that was a cement truck. It's a railway bridge with a clearance of about three metres, except the thing is, you don't, if you're not familiar with it, you don't see the sign until quite late on. Um, and according to the website, the median streak without collecting uh, a 
a high-sided truck is 27 days. So it's been a while, 93 days, historically unusual. Um, but on the reaction, Lou, which uh, has caused uproar in Spain, uh, obviously, which has led to sackings and resignations, but with any scandal like this... Uh, how much of the outrage is actual outrage and how much is people just kind of enjoying getting angry about something, which is an absolutely clear-cut, unspinnable screw-up? Yeah, look, I think, you know, both can be true, right? People can enjoy this. It's a funny <laughs> story, but it's also an expensive story, and I think people were right to lose their jobs over this. Um, my my other favourite, which I'm I'm going to see if either of you can cap also from the state of new south wales in 2020 uh, they bought 10 new ferries uh, off off the shelf uh, from indonesia rather than uh, getting them custom built discovered quite late that for a couple of Parramatta River bridges, you can't have people sitting on the top deck uh, because they may arrive at their destination jetty w without their heads. So, so the, a sort of alarm, I think, has to get sounded, and everybody has to, has to descend has to duck. before the ferry can pass. Uh, but we will move along now to Canada, uh, specifically, very specifically, to Glendale Secondary School in Canada, uh, Hamilton, that is, which has become the first high school on the entire North America. American continent to have been incorporated into the global network language-friendly schools. More than 40 languages are spoken by Glendale students, clever kids, and this is heartily encouraged by the staff. Um, we were talking uh, in the waiting room beforehand about your own experiences, both of you, in international schools, and it turned out you did at one point attend the same international one. school, but, but I believe not at the same time. But um, counterintuitive argument, first of all, Barbara, a school in... Canada, whatever language the kids speak at home, shouldn't their Canadian school be where they're learning English and French? Um, absolutely. And I think, judging from this story, it's the English as second language class mm. that, that sort of welcomed them. Because, of course, if you speak another language at home, which would also mean that that's your, your mother tongue, um, you are going to be at a slight disadvantage. Not not overwhelmingly, because I think when you look at immigrant communities, children always speak the, the local language with a local accent. So they're never um, held back for long. But, you know, obviously in the early years, and I think in this particular case is a, a little girl. Uh, who had uh, come, uh, I think, uh, from Vietnam and so obviously didn't speak the language and needed help. So I think it, it is important, and I certainly had it at the school. Uh, Lou, you wouldn't have, but when I joined, <laughs> when I, I mean, it's one of the clearest memories of my youth. I was about eight and eight and a half years old, walking into that classroom in an international school and not speaking a word of English and not understanding a single word that anyone was saying. So I think in schools where you do have a lot of children that come from second language English backgrounds, I think any help that you give them especially in the early years is, is just it's great because they will learn French and they will learn English that's and, and because the thing is of course that kids do pick it up really really fast absolutely but did this just thinking back to that did you did you find that genuinely quite a, a daunting hurdle to get over I, I, well I mean this is it's going to turn into a therapy session but anyway <laughs> um, uh, it, it, it I, is it's free no well exactly <laughs> um, I think it gave me this is serious because I recently wrote a newsletter about I think it gave me a sense of alienation that mm -hmm. a state with me throughout my life. And I don't mean stayed with me that I feel alienated now, 
But I think if I'm honest, it gives me empathy. It gives me an understanding of what it feels to literally be cut out of the conversation. Because it's never just language, you know. Language is culture. And even in international schools, because we speak English, you know, we call it an international school. They're either British or they're American. So all the popular, you know, the cartoons or the songs or the popular culture or the American. Remember the American embassy had a commissary. And I remember all the American kids would come with the American sweets. And for all like us European or whatever, non-American. You know, to us, it was just the height of decadence. All I wanted was a fruit roll-up. That was my dream, you know. And so it's never just language. And even now in news, I mean, I have to say, hats off to Monocle because you guys are great at it at mixing accents. But because in news or in diplomacy, language is such a key part of, of what we do, you know, we communicate. You can't compromise on that. Then the truth is that native speakers always get an advantage. I mean, you know, think of your job. You know, you have mm. to react live. You know, most people can't do it in their first language. So to do it in a second, and I have to say it's one of my claims to fame, I think it's literally the only one, that I was the first non-native English speaker to present the news in the UK at Channel 5. And I'm still literally one of a handful of second language English speakers that presented in one of the main networks, um, whether it's Al Jazeera, BBC World, or, or CNN, you know, that sounds audibly like there's something not quite right, that I'm not a native, <laughs> well, you know, that I'm not a native speaker. Believe me, I've had all sorts of emails. Um, uh, and, and I actually have a newsletter called News with a Foreign Accent when I focus on this. So it's never just about language. And I think there has to be, um, you know, an understanding that English is the global language. 600 million people speak it as their native language. One billion people speak it as their second or third language. I mean, it'd be lovely to find out how many people listening to us now speak English as a second language. You know, do you know that? How how much of your audience is second language? I actually don't know. And it is an interesting question. I I do want to come back to that question of accent. uh, And we will mercilessly flog your substack when when we do so. But but Lou, (laughs) I, I wanted to ask you as well whether... Because there's a, there's a few countries, and I think this one, the United Kingdom, is one of them. Certainly the country I come from is another. And I think I'm wondering if the United States also fits into this category. It strikes me, certainly thinking back, that there was a huge, there, and there still is, a huge opportunity missed uh, in countries like that with the resource provided at schools by people who speak other languages. I had pitifully little foreign language education in the Australian state school sector. I, I know that the same is largely true here in the United Kingdom, and yet every day I went to school, I went to school with people who I know at home spoke Arabic or Greek or Vietnamese or Australia being Australia whatever you're having yourself. Uh, And it strikes me that this school in Canada is actually attempting to utilize that resource for everybody's benefit. Yeah, look, I mean, America is notoriously bad at at teaching foreign languages and caring about foreign languages and cultures. What I love about this school, which I think they're doing so well, is, is, is making kids proud about the languages they speak at home, right? So I think a lot of times when immigrant in immigrant communities, the kids start to feel a sense of shame. Like, why mm. I'm learning English in school. Why do I have to come home and speak language X? And I think what the school is doing is, is making kids proud, saying it's okay to speak another language at home. It's, gr- it's better than okay. It's fantastic. And we want you to maintain that language and that skill while you're learning English and maybe French in Canada. Um, so I think it's a fantastic, you know, idea and would love to see it spread in America. But I think you just, you know, Americans are so 
you know, English is a language and who needs another language? We can just go out into the world and yell at foreigners yeah, in English. If, if you speak loudly enough in English, they'll understand you. <laughs> I know what you guys are like. <laughs> but Barbara, to come back to your point about accents, and first of all, where can people find your Substack? Uh, so on Substack, it's called News with a Foreign Accent. Um, you know, I thought I'd, you know, what it says on the tin, uh, it's just, yeah, so if you just put it on Google or my Twitter, but you find it on the Substack app, or even if you just Google News with a Foreign Accent, Barbara Sarah. But that, but that question on accents, there's there's two points you make, uh, or at least two points you make in, in that particular piece. One is that English language news organisations, with a few blessed exceptions like Monocle24, still feel a bit squeamish about hiring on-air people who clearly have a non-native English accent. And the other is that thing you mentioned, which I, I hadn't thought of myself, only speaking in one language, about being able to react as quickly and as instinctively in in a second language. How much of a difference is there? And how, how difficult did you find it to get to that point? Because so, clearly you can do it. Yeah, but I can do it, first of all, because I learned English when I was nine. So I don't have a native British voice. And, and bizarrely, there's a lot of Danish in my voice because I grew up in Denmark <laughs> rather than Italian. So it's all very mixed up. And that also makes a difference that a lot of international voices aren't anchored in any one one accent. Mm. So neither British nor American nor Australian, it's a bit of, of a mix. And that, the truth is, can be off-putting. You know, news is about trust. Trust is tribal. People need to trust who they're hearing. And I know it's really, it's an uncomfortable conversation mm. uh, because very few things like speech are as much part of your identity, you know, especially if you have one of the secondary languages, so if you don't have English as your native language. Um, so I don't think that news organizations are being squeamish. I think that actually generally many of them don't even think about it. I think you would find that the focus groups often are not kind. Ironically, if you have an international audience, a lot of them will be second language English. And the great irony is that if you're second language English, you actually need people to speak even more clearly. So actually, you would grab, remember my own dad, you know, he's no longer with, but sometimes I'd catch him watching Sky News. And I'm like, I work for Al Jazeera. What are you doing? And he'd say, yeah, but you know, on Sky News, they're British and it's easier for me to tune into. So I don't think that, you know, news bosses are being mean and keeping out the foreigners. I just think there's a lot of issues around it. Broadcasting live is difficult. I've done a lot of training on my voice. You know, I never go on air without doing a little, you know, some tongue. Tw I mean, I haven't done it today, in fairness. But when I used to, <laughs> when I used to present the news, I do some tongue twisters. Before I would switch off the other language. About twenty, you know, there's a lot of tricks I used. But I just think people need to be aware of it because we're, if we're going to keep on talking about international news and the voice of the world, well, I don't often hear the voice of the world. You know, I often hear the voice of the Anglophone countries, and I think it matters. And that's the thank you for coming to my TED talk. That's <laughs> Barbara Serra and Lou Lukens, thank you both for joining us. Finally, on today's show, as the anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine approaches on Friday, Monocle 24 has been looking at the many impacts of the war on the country and its people. Today, in part three of our series, Monocle's Sophie Monaghan-Coombs asks what role cultural pursuits can have in wartime, both in and out of Ukraine. She spoke to the poet and essayist Andrei Lyubka, who has shunned writing to focus on volunteering for the war effort, and Peter Doroshenko, director of the Ukrainian Museum in New York. For over more than 200 years, Russia has been a shadow over Ukraine. And with that shadow, it also covered in a very big way the whole aspect of Ukrainian culture, Ukrainian art, literature, music, etc. 
one could even say that 40 or 50 percent of Russian culture is built on the bones of Ukraine. It's fascinating on how the 200 years of Tsarist, Soviet, and now Putinist kind of um, periods have really russified what has always been Ukrainian. And it's, for the rest of the world, it's just too easy to, to accept that and to not think about what is Ukraine, what's the difference between Ukraine and Russia. Let me just lump it into Russia. Well, that's changing. In times of conflict, life as you know it is put on hold. But what is the role of arts and culture during this time? Andrew Lubka is a Ukrainian writer, essayist and translator. His published works include three books of poetry, short stories, essays and three novels, many of which have been translated. But he's not currently writing. I can say that my uh, work actually not only changed, but since the big war started uh, one year ago, I didn't write some fiction or essays, uh, or, I don't know, literature uh, in broader sense. Uh, now I am focused on helping Ukrainian army. I use my writer's renome, I use my writer's connection. So in, in some way, it is uh, the continuation of my cultural work, but I work with my audience, with my readers who have read my books before, who visited my talks and discussions and so on. And now they are my donors because they support my activity. Andrew uses his public profile to raise funds and to channel them into the war effort. He's visited the front line 18 times over the past year. As well as delivering jeeps to the army, he takes chocolate and coffee, the kind that he describes as previously found in Ukraine's hipster cafes. But will he return to writing? You know, it is a very hard question for us because, first of all, when I am thinking about the future, first of all, I am thinking about the way and possibility that I have to survive, first of all, as a physical, biological being, because it is the biggest threat. And if I will be alive after the war, if I will survive, I'm sure that my writing, my uh, my books will be very different from what I have done before, because this time changed us crucially. Probably I will write something about this experience, about people I have met during this year, about living under the war uh, circumstances. But also it is highly possible that I will write something which is completely not about the war, because this experience is very hard and psychologically it is very black. And probably after the war, for me, it, it would be better to, to write something about in some new, completely new genre, maybe some kind of fantasy about or some kind of utopia and to write about something good and bright. So I'm not sure what I will be writing. I want to continue my writings after the war. Uh, I miss this feeling when I'm typing on my computer. But first of all, and my main goal now, is to survive in a very biological, physical sense. While those within Ukraine are having their artistic endeavours sidelined as they focus on the war effort, organisations outside of the country play an important role picking up the mantle. One such institution is the Ukrainian Museum in New York, the largest arts organisation outside of Ukraine dedicated to the country's arts and culture. Founded in 1976, it began as an artist's collective, which started to accumulate art from the diaspora and to create an archive on Ukrainian immigration to the US. Now, the purpose-built museum houses temporary and permanent collections, and it's headed by Peter Doroshenko. 
He became director in September, months into the conflict. There has been obviously a lot of focus on all arts organizations outside of Ukraine, uh, and not just Ukrainian-based, on the war. And so it's a balancing act because an organization such as the Ukrainian Museum doesn't want to become a war museum, but yet at the same time, we do have to address it. So it's, I think, for anybody working at a museum, kind of a, a tightrope. But it's important for us to, for our visitors to know what is actually happening with art and culture in Ukraine during this war period, but yet also not to forget the success stories and, and the, the robust kind of uh, history of Ukraine and how it pertains to art and culture. The museum showcases Ukrainian culture in New York, but it also helps organizations safeguard arts and culture in Ukraine. One of their key missions is to be at the forefront of decolonizing Ukrainian culture. You can already see this taking place as institutions like the Metropolitan Museum in New York relabel work as Ukrainian rather than Russian. First of all, Ukrainian art and culture is, you know, centuries old. Most recently, in the last 200, 300 years, the traditional arts and crafts have kind of come to the forefront. And for the last hundred years, they've always been there. This has always been downplayed by the Russians on, you know, little villages and little, you know, settlements making their cute little artwork. But that cute little artwork is actually uh, something that has influenced all the great Ukrainian and Eastern European artists, such as Kazimir Malevich, Vladimir Tatlin, the list goes on and on. That was Peter Doroshenko, director of the Ukrainian Museum in New York, and Andrei Lyubka there speaking to Monocle's Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. And that is all for this edition of The Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Barbara Serra and Lou Lukens. Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Andrei Nikolai Pamentuan. Our sound engineer was Adam Heaton. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. <laughs>